before I go to the passage that I'm going to preach through this morning, I want to invite you to turn to the book of First Thessalonians, or excuse me, Second Thessalonians, for our scripture reading. I want to encourage you to follow along with me a passage that I think will help encourage you today and help us understand our passage in First Peter. Paul is writing to a group of Christians who are suffering uh, in similar ways to the people that, that Peter was writing to. And he encourages them, reminding them that Jesus is coming. So this morning I want to encourage you with the same thought, that Jesus is coming. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, says this, and I encourage you to follow along with me as I read. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray as we go to your word in 1 Peter that you would keep all distractions from our minds, that you would help us to focus on your word, that you would help us hear what it has to say to each of us, to us as a church, and that you would lead us in loving your truth and in walking in obedience and experiencing the fullness of the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives. And I ask this in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. We've been in this book for probably a little over a month now, walking carefully through how Peter instructs those who are suffering as exiles to live. And as we turn there, I want to ask you if you've ever considered what you might put on your bucket list. This is maybe a year where we think more about bucket lists for a variety of reasons, some of them tragic, some of them trivial. What would you do if you knew that you were probably going to die soon? And I don't mean, like, I want to see the Grand Canyon someday. That's something that I would like to do, you know, Lord willing. I mean, what is something reckless and crazy and irresponsible that you might do? Like maybe you would go bungee jumping or maybe you would jump out of an airplane with a parachute. Maybe 
you would be insanely generous. You know, you'd, you'd cash out your bank account in single dollar bills and just make it rain money just for fun. Maybe, if you've ever seen the movie with Morgan Freeman and Jack Nicholson, maybe like Jack Nicholson, you'd be like, you know what, I'm 70 years old, I'm about to die, I'm going to go get a tattoo. I, I, I don't know. The point is, knowledge of the future, and particularly knowledge that you are going to die someday, will change who you are and what you do. If you're convinced that you have a long time before you even have to think about it, you will behave differently. You're not going to be as concerned about getting sick. You're not going to be as worried about dying in in an accident on a motorcycle. If you feel like you are a strong person, smart, able to plan, you'll live one way. But if you are convinced that you will die tomorrow, you will live another way. Today, I want you to keep that in your mind because I'm about to read a passage that does not make sense to us in the 21st century. And I'm speaking broadly. I don't care if you're a believer or a non-believer. If you read these words, you're going to stop for a minute and go, what is that in the Bible for? Today, this passage, I think, challenges us with what we truly believe about what could happen later today or tomorrow or whenever it is that God in his wisdom ordains that Jesus returns, that changes everything. And if you're convinced that it could be at any minute, this passage makes sense. But if you believe that it could be thousands of years away, or that it may not happen at all, then this passage makes no sense. And in fact, I want to invite you, I, I, you know, so many evangelical pastors make references to the Chronicles of Narnia. I try not to do it, just because it makes people roll their eyes and go, oh brother, he's quoting Narnia. If you've ever read the first book of the Chronicles of Narnia, Lucy goes into a wardrobe and she encounters this fawn, and this fawn is in the pay of the white witch. And his job is if he ever sees a human person He is to try to lure them to the witch because the witch knows there's a prophecy that when four thrones at Caraparavel are filled, her reign will be over and done and she will be judged. So her goal is to prevent that from ever happening. So she hires spies like this fawn to capture or kidnap or deceive humans so that that prophecy is never fulfilled, so that her reign continues. And Tumnus the fawn says something as he is weeping, realizing his own wickedness, that he's served the witch, that he has, in fact, begun to capture an innocent child and take her to the witch where she will certainly be destroyed. He says this thing that I think hits home for so many of us. He's worried about what the witch will do to him. And some of it's almost comical because he's a fawn and he says, she might turn my, my hooves into a wretched horse's hoof, which, like, who cares about that? I don't know. Apparently, if you're a fawn, that makes a really big difference. But then he says this, and she might turn me to stone until the four thrones at Caraparavel are filled, and who knows when that'll happen or if it will ever happen. In other words, Tumnus knows the prophecy too. But he no longer believes it because he's willing to work for the enemy. He 
He's willing to work for the white witch because he doesn't believe that her reign will ever end. Tumnus is a believer in Aslan who has stopped living like a believer because he doesn't believe that the promise will come true. And I think often Christians might know the truth that we just read from 2 Thessalonians, that the Lord is going to come with his angels in flaming fire, that he is going to put an end to every injustice. But we think, well, who knows when that will happen or if that will ever happen. And so rather than living by faith day by day, we live in service to the white witch, if you will. We live for the values of this world. And then we read a passage like this, and it's like a two-by-four to the head where we go, how could God allow this or accept this? So let me read it. And if you don't already know, you'll get a sense of what I'm talking about. I'm in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Peter says, servants, or if you're looking at the NIV, it says, slaves, Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now there are some precious verses there. There are some verses that will strengthen and encourage your soul. But in order for those to take deep root in your heart, we've got to wrestle with the fact that Peter just told slaves to obey their masters. It's not something that we ever want to hear in an American context, period. You can understand now why I took a week to demonstrate from the scriptures last week that God hates slavery. That God hears the cries of the oppressed. That God is a champion of the oppressed. That he will rescue the slave. He is a redeemer. He will judge those who commit great acts of evil. And yet when Peter writes to first century Christians, many of whom were slaves, he does not say rise up in rebellion because Christ has set you free. He says the exact opposite. He says, slaves... Be subject to your masters with all respect. In fact, in Greek, that line says, in fear, in every way, have an attitude of submission to your earthly master. Here's the context of that. Peter has said to his readers, to slaves, and to people of every walk of life, Jesus has rescued you. You have been born again to a new and living hope. You have been made part of a kingdom of priests. In Christ, you are not a slave. In Christ, you are a son or a daughter. In Christ, 
You are loved by God and you will be part of the kingdom he is establishing. And he describes how Jesus is the rock of offense who will one day crush all who oppose him. How Jesus is coming back. And so it is urgent that every believer live a life that is holy and self-controlled. And the most important verse for understanding why Peter says this is verse 12 of chapter 2. He says, Believer, keep your conduct among the Gentiles or keep your conduct among unbelievers honorable so that when they speak evil against you or when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, Peter says, their judgment is coming. It's not your job to be the judge. Your job is to do good works in front of them because they know of your faith. So when they see you being patient, when they see you suffering wrongfully, it looks like your faith is genuine. It looks like your hope is solid and real, that you really believe that Jesus is coming back to rescue you because you took a beating when you didn't deserve one. And so your hope must not be here and in this life. Your hope must be in something else. And your faith looks solid and secure when you suffer and you don't deserve it. So Peter says to all Christians... Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Uh, Chris had the joy of preaching about submission to the government, uh, which is especially challenging for many people right now. But the fact that many people don't like the decisions that our leaders are making doesn't give us the freedom to ignore this passage of Scripture. And if anything, the passage that I'm preaching on is even harder to accept. Because as Americans, we understand the horrific evils of slavery. We never want to see someone put in a situation of abuse. We might see servants be subject to your masters and then think, okay, that's true up to a point, but don't tolerate abuse. And then Peter says, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And just in case you missed what he means, he says, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Which blows our minds. We cannot tolerate any kind of abuse, nor should we. I'm not, Peter's not saying beatings are good. But he is saying, if you sin and you're beaten, you kind of have it coming. Which is insane in our modern American context where we believe in the rights of the individual so deeply that we can't fathom someone having a beating taken out on them as being a form of justice. And I think in one sense, part of the problem is we simply do not have a category to understand sin. And so when we see justice, it seems evil to us. We have understood the mercy of God and twisted it to a point where we no longer understand justice. And Peter says to us, not only are we supposed to be humble and submissive to those who are good and kind, but we are supposed to be humble and submissive to those who are abusive. So I've broken this passage up into three sections. I read it all because I feel like it's easier to understand when you hear it all. 
But I want to zero in for just a moment on this unthinkable command of verses 18 to 20. And think about why it is that Peter commands ancient slaves to be subject to their masters. So let me read those verses again. I'm just going to read 18 to 20. Peter says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now the unthinkable command there is Peter says, be subject to your masters even when they treat you unfairly, even when they beat you. The NIV translates this this word servants as slave, just to be clear. They're not talking about those who are paid in the household. They are talking about those who are possessed and owned in a horrible and a disgusting kind of way. I took a whole week to demonstrate what God thinks of slavery, and the, the truth is that he hates it. God will judge every kind of evil. God does liberate captives. But God in his patience is not exacting justice right now. When Jesus came as a king, he healed the sick, he cast out demons, he forgave sins. He did not come the first time exacting justice or all of us would be lost. And so when God begins to preach the good news of Jesus to a broken world, there are slaves and masters that both need the forgiveness of Jesus. And he doesn't say to the slave, the forgiveness of Jesus is for you, and to the master, you are beyond redemption. He says to both of them, you need the forgiveness of sins. And he doesn't end the institution of slavery instantly any more than he ended leprosy or cancer or any of the other evils that plague the world. He founds the church on the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and he unites slave and master both and allows this institution to continue. Now, if you read the New Testament carefully, and I'd encourage you, if you didn't hear my message last week, you can find it on YouTube, go back, pay attention to what God says in all of Scripture about this. I don't have time to repeat everything I said last week. We've got some stuff that I believe God wants to hear very directly in this passage for us today. If you listen carefully, I believe God is saying to us, we need to trust Him when life is unfair. And when things don't make sense to us and God doesn't fix our problems, it doesn't mean he's not in control and he doesn't know what he's doing. Many early Christians were slaves. They lived their entire lives with an earthly master and God did not deliver them from that earthly slavery. Jesus did not end their slavery any more than he stopped our car accidents or cures all of our cancers. The question that we have to wrestle with is, does a Christian with hope in Jesus, who is a slave, have clear instructions with how to live? What do you do when you're just told you're a child of the king? King Jesus is coming to rule and reign, but you have to get up at four o'clock in the morning, take care of all of the household chores, light the fire, cook the breakfast, clean the house. 
How do you live as a Christian in that environment? If you read the New Testament carefully, as I began to say a second ago, you understand slavery can't work in the context of a New Testament church. You can read books like Philemon. You can see how slaves and masters all of a sudden, although outside the church, they were on very unequal standing inside the church. They're on the same platform. And in time, that completely ended ancient slavery, at least for a while, for a season. And that's why it couldn't work in modern times either. Both in England, you saw guys like John Newton. And in America, you saw guys like Frederick Douglass. And the abolitionists, almost all of them were believers in Jesus who read the Bible and said, this cannot be tolerated. This is not right. But the question is, if you're living in that situation, what does the Bible say to you when you are powerless to change it? And this is what Peter says. You are not to live as a rebel. If you do that, no one will believe in Jesus. You are to live with respect and submission to your earthly master. Peter is not saying that it's fine to beat a slave. He's not saying that abuse is a good thing. And like I mentioned last week, this is a passage that American proponents of slavery unfortunately used to try to justify what they did. Peter is in no way saying that this is a good thing. He is addressing a harsh reality in the ancient world. And in doing so, I believe he confronts our unbelief. Because what he says makes a ton of sense if you believe that Jesus could come back at any minute. But if you're not sure, or if you live most of your life focused on this life, and maybe 10% of your life is thinking about heaven and the glory of God and the hope of eternity, then 90% of your life is going to say, this doesn't make sense. And you've got a tiny little portion, a tiny little minority that helps you wrestle with this. But if all of your life is eclipsed by the coming of Jesus, what he says makes an enormous amount of sense. So even to you today who have never experienced the pain of slavery, and I'm speaking primarily, I understand if you're, if you're a minority and you experience racial discrimination, some of that pain is still alive, and I'm sorry for it. But, but for those of you who have not experienced that, this passage is a challenge to you on whether or not you believe that Jesus could come tomorrow. Peter is saying that if your hope is in the return of Christ... Temporary suffering is a small thing, and in fact, it's even a good thing. Now, where am I getting that? Well, twice he actually says it's a gracious thing. What is grace? Grace is God's unmerited favor. Not only does he say that, that it is a gracious thing in the sight of God, but he also says that you receive credit for it. Verse 20, what credit is it. In other words, when you suffer unjustly, knowing that your hope is in Jesus, and don't lose sight of that because he makes it so clear. He says, you must be mindful of God when you suffer this way. There's no value in suffering in and of itself. If you're not mindful of God and you just, you know, like a Buddhist, think that suffering is an illusion and it's not actually evil, there's no value in it at all. But if when mindful of God, you endure suffering, 
Peter is teaching you that there's some good in it, that there's grace in it, that there's credit in it. What is he talking about? Well, I believe that there are at least two ways that this kind of suffering is gracious. And I believe that that's also true when you experience sickness, when you experience something unfair in your job, or when you're stuck in a terrible marriage and your spouse is unfair. There is grace in your suffering when you suffer mindful of God In two ways. Number one, that suffering helps us stop sinning and begins to teach us to live in righteousness. Now, I'm going to use an illustration that I think is hopefully not disrespectful because we're talking about something that's very serious. A beating and abuse is horrible. In fact, before I go any further, I want to say if you are a victim of physical or sexual abuse, call the police. They are there to protect you. So I'm not using this passage to say abuse is fine. You can be a godly person and be abused. I'm not saying that at all. I am saying that in this context, this type of suffering is going to help them become better Christians. And let me give you this kind of illustration, okay? Uh, So as a young man, it actually started probably when I was about 17 or 18. Uh, I've had some really serious back pain. Uh, back pain that's so serious that I would really struggle to be able to even get up out of bed. Uh, And when it's bad, my low back seizes up. You can actually tell because I can't stand up straight. So it's happened once or twice since I've been here at the church, and you can, like, I'll hobble in kind of like this. Like, I've I've never needed a cane. I've never done anything other than that. I've been to a doctor that that they put me on meds for a little while. Uh, I've been to physical therapy. That helped for a little while. But, you know, as always, you just stop doing the exercises, and then it stops helping. It's weird, right? Um, The thing that actually helped most, though, uh, was when I started lifting weights. So my back pain drove me to go to the gym and strengthened my whole body. Now, I still experience back pain sometimes, but instead of debilitating pain for two weeks, it'll be pretty serious pain for a couple of days, and then I'll go back to the gym, and it'll help me. And uh, So, in other words, the pain of a dysfunctional back taught me to do something good. In fact, it also taught me to stop doing bad things. Sometimes my posture was just horrible, and I never thought about it. I mean, I I, I liked collapsing like a jellyfish into the couch, and and that's not good for your back. Turns out that your posture actually matters, and when you start pinching nerves in your low back, it really hurts. So if you have good posture, you have less back pain. Well, that pain taught me to have healthy posture. It also motivated me not only to stop doing bad things, but it motivated me to start doing good things, to learn how to move with healthy posture, to build some strength in my muscles so that I didn't live in excruciating pain all the time. Now, that's not a beating. There's no like terrible injustice to having back pain. Most people have back pain. It's not that special. If you are beaten, I don't want to make light of that. But what Peter is saying is, when you suffer... It causes you to think through your life. You begin to wonder, did I do something to deserve this? And what Peter is implying is, sometimes you did. Uh, Because he straight up says, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? In other words, if you sin and you suffer, that suffering may be an act of judgment on you because of your sin. It's helping you understand the consequence of sin. And there's not like a one-to-one correlation here. 
In this life, we don't have perfect justice. It's all over the map. Sometimes people suffer and they're totally innocent. And I want to say that very clearly because if you're suffering, I'm not using this passage to say God is giving you justice now. He's not. God's justice in this life is delayed. What I am saying is pain in this life makes you question whether or not you deserve that pain. And the answer that Peter is saying is sometimes you do because you are a sinner. The Bible teaches that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the physical pain of this kind of beating is going to teach a person to say, whoa, where do I stand before God? Now, Peter is writing to believers. He's writing to people who have been born again to a new and living hope. So his concern for them is not that they hear the gospel and be saved. His concern for them is that the gospel work out in their lives so that they begin to live in obedience to the gospel. They've not just believed it to be saved. They've believed it to be changed, to become like Jesus Christ. And this suffering is changing them from the inside out. That's number one. This kind of suffering is a grace that teaches you to stop sinning and teaches you to live rightly. So imagine for a second the type of person he's talking to. You're a first century slave. You have household duties. Maybe you don't do a good job with them. And because of that, your master beats you. Now, I can't even believe I'm saying these things, but it's in the text. Peter is saying that beating will help you reevaluate whether or not you deserved it. And if you sinned by failing to be subject to your master, and if you sinned by not working, by being lazy, Peter is saying that you ought to repent of that sin and that you ought, for the Lord's sake, to be subject to every human institution. Again, I'm not saying that this is justifying slavery. It's not. What he is saying is that the Christian, whether a slave or a free person, a man or a woman, a Jew or a Gentile, the Christian is someone who hopes in God and lives a life like Jesus could come back at any second. And if that grace teaches you to repent of sin, you are more prepared to look Jesus in the face. In other words, as a Christian, I've been a Christian for over 20 years, close to 30 years now. I sinned in ways that I was not even aware of for decades. And if Christ had come back, I would have been embarrassed. Not not, not that I wasn't saved, not that I wouldn't have gone to heaven, but that I wasn't totally ready to meet him because I wasn't very much like him when I first believed. But the grace of God teaches me to repent of sins and to grow more and more like him. When I was in high school, I was a real jerk. I was very proud. I was very sarcastic. Sarcasm was like a virtue in my youth group. I think it still is in many youth groups. So if I could be sarcastic, you know, I actually, I hurt a lot of people. 20 years later, I still have people that kind of don't want to be around me because I hurt them 20 years ago with my sarcasm. And 20 years ago, I didn't feel bad about it. I felt like, man, I'm really funny. It made me feel intelligent. It made me feel happy. And through a number of different painful experiences, God said, hey, like humor is fine. Sarcasm is not always. If you hurt people with your humor, that's actually sinful. And so through the pain of life, God changed me 
So when I see Jesus face to face now, I'm not saying I'm perfect. That's just one silly example. But when I see Jesus face to face now, I don't have that on my conscience. That's not part of who I am now. And there are many other areas where Christ will change you through the pain of life and make you ready to see Jesus face to face. So that's the first way that this kind of suffering is a grace. The second way, and this is key, and I don't want you to miss this, it's part of the justice of God. The second way that suffering is a grace is that God will one day bless you for it. So number one, you could call it sanctifying grace. It's making you holy. It's making you like Jesus. Number two, you will be rewarded for your patient endurance when you see Jesus. And I have no idea what those rewards are going to be like. Paul says, we can't imagine it, but I can tell you this, they're going to be better than you can possibly imagine. Last week, I encourage you to think through the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, how Lazarus is living in comfort, in luxury, in the presence of God, and the rich man is in torment in hell, and, and Lazarus is experiencing good things, and Abraham clearly says this is because he suffered in this life. Not that suffering is a virtue, but suffering when mindful of God will be credited to you. God sees you. God knows your pain. God hears your cries. If you do not receive justice in this life, you will be blessed in the next life. It's not only is Peter giving us this unbelievable command in order to help us be ready to see Jesus, in order to help us be blessed when we do see Jesus, He gives us the example of Christ. He's saying, you are not doing anything that Jesus has not done before you. And this is so key. So let's look now at the example of Christ after we've seen this unbelievable command. And look with me, starting in verse 21. Peter says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now pause right there. Peter is saying to servants, to slaves, and to everyone, he he really applies this more broadly, that Christ gives you the example So that you are to follow in his footsteps. In other words, expect suffering in this life and don't complain about it. Don't be surprised by it. Now, in this year, that is almost an unthinkable thing to say out loud. Nobody predicted, well, okay, some people predicted that we would have a global pandemic, but we all thought they were crazy. So no one actually thought it would happen. But no matter how it happens, suffering is universal and will happen. The Bible makes it clear. If you expected to live a comfortable life, you are going to be disappointed. We are not living in the kingdom of God with Jesus on the throne. That's the only time when you can expect unending good things. Peter is saying, when you suffer, don't be surprised, don't be angry, don't be fearful. Instead... Follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. And what does he mean by following the footsteps of Jesus Christ? Number one, don't commit sins. Number two, 
don't say bad things about the people that are causing your suffering. Whether they're politicians that you don't agree with the decisions that they're making, whether they're people you work with that you have no control over, whether they're students causing you all kinds of frustration because you don't have control over them either. Don't say bad things about the people that are causing you frustration. And most important, entrust yourself to the God who judges justly. Now think for a moment about the crucifixion of Christ, the things that Jesus lived through. When Jesus was being dragged down that road, Scripture says that at one point the cross became so heavy that someone else had to carry it for him. He had already been beaten. He'd already been flogged. He was losing blood. His, his body would have been swelling painfully. He had a crown of thorns crushed on his head, and then he's led away to, to the hill of Calvary, and, and he's crucified with nails driven through his wrists and through his, through his feet. And as he's suffering in that way, He's not saying this is so unfair, even though it was unfair. He's not saying this is hopeless, because it wasn't. Peter says he is entrusting himself to him who judges justly. At history's darkest hour, when it looks like Satan is triumphing, what Christ is doing is he's saying the Father's going to make this right. This is really bad, but it won't be three days from now. Not only is the resurrection coming, remember the passage we read from 2 Thessalonians. Christ one day will return with his angels. And this is why last week I read that passage from James. Masters who abuse their slaves, God is going to judge you in terrifying ways. James says, weep, moan, and wail because the wages that you have held back from your laborers are crying out against you. And when Jesus returns with his angels, those masters who prospered for a little while will suffer eternal punishment away from God and his angels. Now, that's a heavy thing to say. That judgment is delayed. While we live in this middle period, Peter says, follow the example of Christ and entrust yourself to God who judges justly. He will not be too harsh or too lenient. He will be the perfect judge of both slaves and masters. And Christian today in 21st century America when you have laws and ordinances that you don't like, that you want to rebel against, and Chris talked a little bit about this, like there are ways that you can push back that are legitimate. We, we value peaceful protest. We value talking to our representatives. I'm not saying anything bad about that. What I am saying is you have an obligation to follow the law because God has told you to. And as you are obedient to earthly laws, you have a good testimony about your faith and your hope in Jesus Christ. And if the law is bad, God will judge those who have put it in place and have enforced it. You don't have to agree with it. You don't have to say this is the best thing. You have to follow it and trust that God is going to make it right. I also want to say a word. Abolitionists understood this was not saying that we should live with wicked and evil institutions. They worked tirelessly to end slavery in America and in Europe because they understood that Jesus is coming. And we don't want to be in this sin when he returns. You want to deal with it now. 
So we entrust ourselves to him who judges justly when we suffer and we strive to not commit sin like Christ. That is the example that he sets. Paul says in Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We trust that God will take care of all of our grievances. And Christian, I want to encourage you today to rest in that hope. Not only is there the example of Christ, Peter ends with the benefits of Christ. So look at how not only did Jesus do this for us as he dies. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Peter's already encouraged Christians to put away sin because they know Jesus is returning. Then he says, by his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So there are three benefits. If you are a Christian, there are three benefits to the work of Christ for you. First, there is transformation in your life. Now, he's writing to slaves. Many of them would have died as slaves. The transformation doesn't mean that you have a better husband or a better wife. It doesn't mean that your life changes now. The transformation is one that happens inwardly in you as you trust God. You die to sin and you live to righteousness. As you look to Christ Trusting that his blood allows for the forgiveness of your sins and trusting that his example is what you must follow. The transformation is the work of salvation in you. Not only that, you not only experience the benefit of transformation, you experience the benefit of healing. Now look at the context of what he's saying here. Before it and after it, he's talking about the forgiveness of sins. And so I believe primarily this healing is talking about the fixing of your broken soul. The new covenant promises all over the Old Testament said that God would put his law on our hearts so that we no longer desired to do what was evil, but instead from the inside we would want to do what was right and good. That's not normal. That's not natural. So the healing that God begins in us is one where we are restored to what God has intended us to be. People made in his image that love doing what is right. And we might want physical healing right now. Jesus healed a ton of people all over, all over the Gospels. You see him healing the sick, and it's incredible. And sometimes God heals today, One day, he will heal everyone. And I believe this passage would teach us to suffer in that hope and to suffer with that faith and to recognize that because of the wounds that Jesus received, our healing is purchased and paid for. So the third benefit, I've called it safety. We sang about how our shepherd defends us before I started preaching in that amazing song. Peter says, you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You might think of how amazing grace says, I was lost, but now I'm found. God rescued me. And the shepherd and overseer of your soul sometimes allows terrible things to happen to your body. 
And yet He is good. And He loves you. And His goal is to preserve you and to see you safely into His Father's fold so that your soul is eternally secure. The great hope that you have is you have the best shepherd in the world and He is overseeing your soul even when things seem out of control, even when life is unfair and you are actually suffering unjustly. You have a shepherd and an overseer of your soul who has rescued you even though you were guilty and straying and wandering the other way. You have a great benefit because you have a great Savior. So this passage that causes us so much stress is a passage that teaches us to humbly trust God when life is unfair. And I want to challenge you, if you think about, think about your bucket list that I began this message with, I want to challenge you as an end. If you really believe that Jesus is going to return and judge the world, then how do you behave under executive orders or health administration orders? How do you behave as an employee? How do you behave at Thanksgiving? How do you behave in a world that seems unfair and broken if Jesus is coming tomorrow? So I was preparing this message. I was listening to a little bit of music. Phil Long actually sent me a text message about Stephen Curtis Chapman out of the blue. And I started thinking about his life and how many great songs he's written. He's a phenomenal guitar player. And some of you know his story, but in 2008, he had a five-year-old little girl that was killed because his son backed out of a driveway and unfortunately hit her and she died. She was a little girl that they had adopted He had been at an event where his wife said, I don't want you to look at any orphans. Our family is full. We have enough kids. And he came and he said, honey, we got to adopt this little girl. I just just fell in love with her. She's so perfect. And they adopted her. And just a few short years later, she died in their driveway. Chapman has talked very openly about how horrible that experience has been in their lives. And yet over a decade later now, he can say that God has helped him and his wife and walked with them through that pain and through that grief. He described a moment where their little girl asked his wife, is God really preparing a place for us? It's a five-year-old little girl. She'd learned a little bit about heaven and church. And her mama walked her through the truth of the gospel. She said, yes, he really is. He really is. And if you really want to go there, you need to place your faith and your trust in Jesus. And right before she died, she put her hope completely in Jesus. So as a family, their hope is that they will see her again because she trusted Jesus as her Savior. And I'm reading all this stuff, and I knew a little bit about the story, and I'm just weeping because I long for my kids to know Jesus, to have this kind of hope so that when the worst of the worst happens and it seems so horrifically and tragically unfair, she's an innocent little girl. His own son accidentally killed her and he didn't mean to do that and he wasn't being reckless or careless or anything it was just an accident what's more unfair than an accident and yet the shepherd allowed this to happen in their lives and now 10 years later their faith is blessing people because they've demonstrated not only did they say the right Christian things when the accident happened but 10 years later he and his wife still love each other 
and their faith is still in Jesus and they are still trusting him and it's solid and secure. And even though they've lost something horrible, they believe that the just judge and the good shepherd will make all things new and restore it all when Jesus returns. So friend, I've got an application for you. If you don't know the Lord Jesus, I would urge you to confess your sins and trust him. But if you do, when you are stuck and things are unfair and you can't change it and you can't fix it, number one, remember that Jesus has saved you. Number two, be faithful in praying about the person or situation causing you trouble. And here's why I say that, because Peter says that Jesus didn't revile when he was spoken against. Instead, we know Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know what, what they do. If we're going to follow his example, we need to say, Father, forgive the people who are leading our country in ways that we think are so wrong because they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive the people who are causing us pain because they don't know what they're doing. Pray about the person or the situation that's causing you trouble. And number three, and this is big, be like Jesus. That is your calling. It's not an accident. Your shepherd hasn't taken you to a place that you never should have been. So many people say, you know, when they're in a bad marriage, oh, I never should have married this person. Your shepherd has guided your life in the exact way that he knows will be good for you. If you have trusted your soul to him, there are no mistakes. God is with you. He is protecting you. He is even blessing you in your pain. Trust in your good shepherd and be like Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, this is a hard and a heavy passage, and I pray for the grace to accept it. God, so often we doubt your goodness and your justice, and I pray for the humility to trust you. And Father, I pray that you would unite us in the hope of Jesus' return that we would be ready for it, whether it's today or tomorrow or a thousand years from now, that we would live in constant readiness, looking for that blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. And I ask for all of these things in his name. Amen.